Well, good morning, church. As we've been going through 1 Corinthians, we're kind of in a season where the next few chapters all kind of repeat themselves, themselves. And Paul's got this one sort of message, and it's all about having the abundant life by dying to yourself. And so I want to ask you a question. If I was in any church this morning, any Christ-believing, Bible-teaching church this morning, and I asked the question, do you know, Christian, that we have an enemy? Everybody would say, Rich, of course we know we have an enemy, right? We know that Satan is the enemy of our soul. After all, the Apostle Paul spent a lot of time speaking to the church at Ephesus about the full armor of God. But what if I told you that we have another enemy that's just as dangerous that most Christians tend to forget, and that is self. Self. Galatians 5, very clearly, the Apostle Paul says that the flesh and the spirit battle one another so that we don't even do the things that we want to do. You see, Christianity is this paradox where even the strongest Christians sometimes, we tend to forget that this world is not our home. We're just pilgrims kind of cruising through this dry and thirsty land and we're heading for our real home. And so we're to live contrary to the ways of the world. See, as Christ followers, we're to die to gain real life. We surrender to win. And the Christian who is able to give up everything then gains everything. J.B. Cahilla said this, Self-denial is a virtue that people through the ages have found hard, if not impossible, to do. After all, everybody wants to be on top. Everybody wants to be the top dog. Everybody wants to be in first place. And while we may think of self-denial as a painful habit that denies us all our pleasures, the truth is that it gives us more than we could ever wish or hope for. Keep that in the back of your mind as you open your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 as we continue down this road of this letter from the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. So remember where we were from last week. Last week, the Apostle Paul very clearly said, be careful using your Christian liberties of causing a brother or sister to stumble. Because the question was, can we eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols because we realize that idols mean nothing? Some had knowledge that idols meant nothing. But they were using that knowledge and that freedom to puff themselves up rather than to build up the weaker brothers. And so if we use our Christian liberties and it causes someone else to stumble, then we are not seeking the other person's good. We are being selfish because love always triumphs over liberty. And unity among Christians always triumphs over a Christian's personal rights. And so today, kind of along that same line, he, it's the same thought, and he goes on for quite a while about it, is all about self-denial. So if you have your sermon notes, Roman numeral one, Paul's status as an apostle. Paul's status as an apostle. If your Bibles are open, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, let's begin at verse 1. The apostle Paul asks a series of rhetorical questions. He says, am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? And if I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, 
for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So remember, Paul goes from speaking on the freedom to eat meat that was sacrificed to idols, and now he's going to continue right on that same thought. Remember what he said in Galatians 5.13. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only, catch this, don't use that liberty as a license or an opportunity for the flesh, but rather through love, serve one another. Yes, you have freedoms, but don't use that as a license for sin. Prior to his salvation, Saul, who later became Paul, was a Pharisee of the highest rank. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, a member of the Sanhedrin. So he had all the clout, all the position, all the power he could ever want. And now he's an apostle, and so he's got all the clout to the church he could ever want. And so he's been talking about Christian liberties, and he's trying to show that though you have freedom in Christ, your freedom is best used when you consider other people rather than using it as a license for the flesh, serving self rather than Christ. You see, as followers of Christ, we are to live... We're to live to satisfy him, not ourselves. We are free, yes, but the best part of that freedom, the best part of freedom in Christ is that I'm no longer in bondage to sin. And, you know, oftentimes I've said I hate Romans chapter 6, and let me explain before you get mad at me, because how could you hate passages? Romans chapter 6, Paul talks all about how we used to be slaves to sin, but now... Now that you're saved and now that you have the Holy Spirit, you're no longer a slave. So when you sin, it's your own free will. That's why I hate it. <laughs> there in your notes, Paul is explaining how he laid down his rights as an apostle. So he asked the Corinthians to let go of their rights to eat meat, sacrificed idols, and exercise love ahead of liberties. Exercise love. And so he asked this rhetorical question, am I not an apostle? Remember, the original apostles were given a special commission to go and begin the foundation of the early church. They were also given special abilities and special signs and wonders to prove the message that they were speaking came from the Lord. They were given all this power. Now today... There are no apostles in the original sense, and I've made plenty of people mad saying this before, but there were two criteria to be an apostle back then. One was, yes, you were called, and we could all say, we're Christians. We were all called to do this. We're all called to reach the world. But the second criteria, the second part of that was that you had physically seen the risen Christ. Physically seen. And so there's nobody today who could say that. Acts 1.21, the apostle speaking about choosing a new apostle said, Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Paul saw the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. You could read about that in Acts chapter 9. And so we know when he says, not only was I called an apostle, but I saw the risen Christ. So I, he's met both criteria. So his next rhetorical question, am I not free? Am I not free just like you? You, you see, Paul was under no one's authority save the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He was under no one's authority, even though all these churches were under some apostle's authority. Paul was under no one's authority but Jesus himself. And so the next question, have I not seen Jesus, our Lord? Paul's confirming, hey, when I saw Jesus on the road to Damascus, this wasn't just some wild vision. I saw Jesus. I saw the holes in his hands. I saw the scars. I saw Jesus. He spoke to me. I spoke to him. Post-resurrection Jesus Christ, I saw him. And so the next question, and imagine Paul saying this. Paul planted this church. And imagine him looking at this church and saying, aren't you my work in Christ? Aren't you fruit of my labor? If you're questioning my call, aren't you the fruit of my call? There in your notes, the fruit that was produced from different churches Paul was over was enough proof to show he was indeed an apostle. Wearsby said, Paul considered the Corinthian church a very special seal of his ministry. So if there's no other proof, you're my seal, you're my ministry. Corinth was a very difficult city to minister in, and yet Paul accomplished all this. And how did he do it? Because he was so wonderful? No, he did it because he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. You know, that, that's the thing, you know, when you go as, as a vocational pastor, you, you get to some of these interviews and, you know, it's a fine line between staying humble and showing what God has done with you. You know, so you're like, well, under my ministry, you know, you're out. But at the same time, you have to say, if there's fruit, give God the glory because it was him and him alone that did it. You're not that good. So Paul said, I've taught you everything you've known about Jesus Christ. So surely at least you guys prove I'm an apostle. There in your notes, Ray Stedman said, Paul is saying, if I'm an apostle and I have this knowledge that's greater than yours, as he's going to prove over the next 20 verses, nevertheless, I do not exercise all of my rights. So if anyone had a right to say, I insist you treat me like this, I insist you give me that, I insist, I insist. Surely an apostle would have that right, wouldn't he? And so he's saying, follow my example. If I don't insist on you holding the door for me and me behaving this way, why do you? So Roman numeral two, Paul's right, writes as an apostle, look at verse three. He said, my defense to those who examine me is this. Do we have no right to eat or drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife as the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord, and Cephas, or Peter? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? The words defense and examine are actually legal words used in Roman courts. And so Paul's basically saying, I'm on trial by these people who say that I'm not really an apostle. I'm on trial. You ever felt that way in your Christian walk? I'm on trial as you look down your nose at me. And that's kind of what Paul was saying. And, and what he's saying is, hey, I'm about to lay out my case. And you're going to know that you know that you know that I'm an apostle. Yet, I don't insist on my rights. And so he says, don't we have the right to eat or drink? And surely you'd say, no one's stopping the guy from eating. Come on, what are you talking about? Well, what Paul was talking about was, 
If you are the church I minister to, you ought to supply for my physical needs. I'm putting in all my time, all my effort, you ought to supply for me. And by the way, this is a very comfortable part of the message for a vocational pastor to preach, right? <laughs> I told one of the elders on Tuesday, I'm not bucking for a raise, it's in here. I didn't write this, okay? So if you're listening, but that's what he's saying is the churches that I minister over, I put my full-time ministry into, I deserve to be paid, yet I'm not going to take money from you. This portion of the defense is all about being financially supported by these churches. You know, I get asked on a regular basis, since you're a vocational pastor, that's what you do, what do you do for a living? <laughs> or, or since you only work one day a week and that's only for an hour, what do you do with the other six days? I jokingly say that all the time, and Sandra always says, what's her name? <laughs> if you only work one hour a week, and you're gone 60, what is her name, right? <laughs> but the Apostle Paul was a tent maker but for a living, right? So he did not need to make a living off the church. Acts 18.1, after these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontius, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded to all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. Let me tell you what a website called The Theology of Works said about this. Tent making has become a common metaphor for Christians who engage in a money-earning profession to support their ministry, right? So they're not taking a check from their ministry. The term bivocational is often used to indicate that two separate professions exist in their life. One feeds their family and pays their bills, and the other one serves the Lord. There in your notes, but Paul's example shows that all aspects of human life should be a seamless witness. There's little room to draw distinctions between professional ministry and other forms of witness. So Paul's next offense, okay? So here it is. I have a right to earn money from the church, yet I won't take it. Next offense. Don't I have the right to take a believing wife? Again, the Corinthian Christians didn't care if he had a wife or not, but again, what he's saying is, you ought to be supporting my family. I'm putting all this time in. Don't I have the right to have a wife just like the other apostles do? And, and what's so funny is, he mentions the other apostles and Cephas, or Peter, by name. And what's so funny is, in the, Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church believes that Peter was the first pope, right? which they take a passage out of context, and that's another day. But here's Peter, the first pope, and yet Peter was married. And yet the Roman Catholic Church would say that priests can't be married and popes can't be married, right? So it's kind of ironic. But then he blows that away again, but in verse 5 he says, and the brothers of the Lord. Jesus had half-siblings, right? I mean, Mary had Jesus, then later got married to Joseph, of course, and they had other children. And so who he's talking about is James and Jude, the half-brothers of Jesus. And they were married too. So they can be married. Paul's saying, why can't I be married? 
Paul previously taught, though, that single people can give much more to the ministry than married people do. But there in your notes, some apostles were married and they were supported by the church. And, and so he's saying, I'm in a unique position. I'm a tent maker. I'm probably putting in 100 hours a week and I'm serving the church. I deserve a salary, but I'm never, never, never going to take one. And contrary to what I believe, I believe this guy, I would so respect this guy. Here's a guy that's working his fingers to the bone and won't take a dime. I'm like, I respect him. But these Corinthian Christians, instead of respecting him more, they were saying, you're kind of less than an apostle. Because if you were a real apostle, you'd take a paycheck sort of thing. And to me, that's crazy. You would think that it would build up more respect, and it didn't. And again, he had all these rights. He said, but I won't use them. Because I don't want you to think that I'm up here selling you a bill of goods. I want you to glorify Jesus Christ. And that's why, further the gospel message, I won't abuse these rights. So Roman numeral three. The Old Testament as an example. Look at verse seven. And now he's going to give a list of people who get paid for a vocation. He says, whoever goes to war at his own expense. Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit? Or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? Do I say these things as a mere man? Or does not the law say the same thing also? For it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out grain. Is it oxen that God's concerned about? Or does he say it altogether for our sake? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we weep, reap material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things lest we would hinder the gospel of Christ. Warren Wiersbe said, you've got to understand that the Old Testament was the only Bible these early Christians had. The New Testament was happening right before their eyes. It wasn't even written yet. And so he said, as this is happening, you've got to understand when Paul brings up the law of Moses, that's the only Bible they got. There in your notes, the first believers found guidance in the spiritual principles of the law, even though they had been liberated from obeying the commandments of the law. And so he gives these examples of different people who get paid to do work. Do soldiers go to war and not get paid? Come on. Do farmers go out in the field and not reap? Do shepherds? All these different vocations. So it's natural to think that the guy who's leading this church should be supported. And then he quotes from Deuteronomy 25.4. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out grain. It's talking, of course, about humane treatment of an ox, right? So the ox is working hard and he's kind of going through the grain and all of a sudden he's, you know, kind of slowing down a little bit and starts chewing on some grain. And basically what the law is saying is don't stop that guy. That's not right. Uh, imagine how hungry this ox is. Why would you stop him? But then look at verse 9. It says, is it oxen that God's concerned about? Really? You think it's the animal God's talking about here? Paul's teaching that Deuteronomy was established that a minister should be supported. And this is what Wiersbe said. 
since oxen can't read, it's probably written to us. <laughs> so verse 10, he who threshes in hope should be a partaker of his hope. In other words, if you've worked for it, right, you should be taken care of. If we've sown spiritual things, then the physical things should be taken care of. And again, he points out all these other people have had these benefits, but I won't do it. Why? Because I don't want the gospel hindered. There in your notes, Paul denied himself to prevent the gospel from being hindered. All right, so Roman numeral four, Paul would not use the privilege. Verse 13. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple? And those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. But I have used none of these things, nor have I written these things that it should be done so for me, for it would be better for me to die than that anyone should make my boasting void. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. For if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will I have been entrusted with a stewardship, what is my reward then? That when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge, that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. Again, Paul's given this great example of how we should live as Christians and also how that we don't abuse Christ's church for financial gain. 2 Thessalonians 3, 7, Paul said, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. What a great example. Work. You know, in 2 Thessalonians, Paul said, if you will not work, neither shall you eat. And basically, Paul's saying, look, I didn't come in and insist that you throw money at me or anything else. I worked for what I have. And Paul's saying, don't use the ministry. You know, so many of these name it and claim it financial prosperity guys take Jesus' words to Peter and they twist him just a little bit. Peter, do you love me? Yes, then fleece my sheep. And I, I think what Jesus said was, feed my sheep, right? Fleece my sheep. Don't manipulate God's people. And he said, we have not used this right. Why? Lest we hinder the gospel. Hinder the gospel. Is it important to support your pastors in the ministry who give their whole life to it? Absolutely. But if they are in it just for a J-O-B, send them down the road, Right? That's the deal. Oh, well, I worked two hours overtime. Did you really? You see, in ministry, it's kind of weird because vocationally, my first ministry, I was not paid. I, we were in a position we didn't need to be paid, and I had so much freedom. And I want to tell you, I think I work 80 hours a week without a paycheck and so enjoyed myself. The moment they put me on staff, I remember to this day... This lady came up to me in the church and she said these words and she wasn't even kidding a little. Now we own you. And I was like, oh, why did I accept the paycheck? 
That was my biggest regret in ministry. You know, so vocationally as a pastor, you have a twofold thing. You have, yes, it's a J-O-B and there's parts of the job. I am responsible to this body, to the elder board. I'm responsible for my job. But then on top of that, I have a ministry as well. And if you don't understand that there's twofold, you probably shouldn't be in the ministry. But Paul's like saying, look, we even robbed from other churches so that you didn't have to give me a dime. In fact, 2 Corinthians 11.8, he said, I robbed other churches, taking wages from them so I can minister to you. So it would never be said. Even the Philippian church gave him money when he was on his way to Thessalonica. His heart was to share the gospel. But he never wanted anyone to say that his motivation was for money. You know, you, you see these pastors in there in $10,000 suits, and my $2 million jet's not doing it anymore, so now I need a $30 million jet to preach the gospel. And sometimes, you know, I go through more TVs that way. I throw that TV across the street when I hear that stuff. But he said, look, deny yourselves. I have the right. But then notice what he says in verse 16, and, and this is a bad case of the can't-hepits, right? He says, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. Woe is me. I mean, God has called me to this. If I don't preach the gospel, I feel like I'll just die. I'll just fall over and die right now. If, if I stop talking about Jesus, I am going to drop dead right here. Guzik said this, Paul's ministry was not just a matter of choice or personal ambition. It was something he was called to do, something he had to do. There in your notes, he did not just have the preacher's itch. He was called to preach and felt compelled to fulfill that call. I've been entrusted with a stewardship, Paul said. I got to do this. I have to, and I'm going to do it without charge. In Paul's day, you got to understand, in Corinth, there were a lot of people who were preaching any message they could just to fleece people of money. Anything, the latest and greatest, and just to give them money. And, and Paul said, look, I want nothing to do with those guys. The gospel is free, and I want nothing to do. What a crying shame when people take advantage of someone in the ministry. The, the gospel agreed, by the way, is just so evil. These televangelists, man, I'm telling you, you think I'm kidding you when I want to get up and kick the TV. I am not. Here's the thing. I've had so many people visit the church and say, you guys don't even pass around an offering plate. I haven't even heard about giving. That's on purpose, right? That's on purpose. Because here's the thing. We believe, we're fool enough to believe, number one, that God's going to take care of it. And number two, that giving's between you and the Lord. And so, you know, I've had people on the way out, where do I put this offering? I don't want to know about it because ever since we started fully trusting God and just leaving it in his hands, we've never needed for a thing in this body. And, and the only time you're ever going to hear me bring up giving is one, if it's specifically within the passage or two, somebody comes up, a missionary, something like that. And there's a specific need that we're going to take a special love offering because truly mine is not to fleece you. If you can't give with a cheerful heart, then God will deal with you, and that's up to you. But these abuses, fleecing God's people, to me, is one of the worst kind of evils that a pastor can do. Our goal is to glorify Jesus, number one. Feed his sheep and reach people. That's our goal. And that's why we don't pass around an offering plate. And so Paul says, I've denied myself all these rights. 
for you to support me, to support my family, all this stuff. And in fact, I've robbed other churches, so you can't say that. So all that to be said, as I went through this message, again, very comfortable message for a pastor to get up that, you know, you guys pay my salary, and now I get up here and say, pay me. <laughs> and so I said, where do we go, Lord, with this practically? And so God laid some things on my heart, so I thought I would share with you. So let's get practical this morning. Let's talk about self-denial as a follower of Christ. And I started this sermon by saying if I asked any church, any Christ-believing, Bible-teaching church, do you know we have an enemy and everyone, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But what we don't realize is the other enemy is just as dangerous sometimes, and that's self. That's self. Again, Galatians 5, that the flesh and the spirit war against one another. According to Oxford Dictionary, self-denial is the denial of one's self-interest, needs, and self-sacrifice is something that self-denial includes. So what does it mean for me? What does it mean for you? Self-denial does not mean giving up your personality. You know, God created me, good, bad, or otherwise, the way that I am. Now, he has transformed me... <laughs> Over the past 30 plus years, he's transformed me. I mean, you wouldn't even, I don't recognize who that man was, you know, when I was 15, so 40 years ago. Oh my gosh. Anyway, I don't even recognize that guy anymore. I don't know who that guy was, yet I still have my sarcastic side. You may not know this about me, but I'm sarcastic. <laughs> love to joke, love to play around. So self denial doesn't mean that you put, you know, your personality and all that stuff aside. What it means is a surrender to Christ. And Christ will use my past and my sarcasm and all those things. As long as I'm surrendered, he will use me. He will use my personality and my talents for his glory. You've got to remember who you are in Christ. Number one, remember who you are. You are his masterpiece. He bought you. He knew your sin and loved you anyway. Remember who you are in Christ, that you're forgiven, you're adopted, you've been accepted. And, and so here's what self-denial, here's the main crux of what self-denial means for you and for me, is taking self, crucifying it, taking it off the throne of your life and placing Jesus Christ firmly on the throne of your life. That's self-denial. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this about self-denial. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. A follower of Jesus must be prepared to die if death is part of his discipleship. Paul said in Colossians 3, 2, to set your mind on things above, not on things of this earth. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. Set your mind on things in heaven and die. Once Jesus is on that rightful throne of your life, I give up my fleshly desires. And how do I do it? I'm so weak. I fail daily. But empowered by the Holy Spirit, I can live for Christ. And that's the only way I can. People ruled by their own fleshly desires seek to satisfy self. And they disregard the Holy Spirit's promptings. They disregard and they become numb to it. And I had someone ask just, just Thursday, I had someone call me and ask, so tell me, 
how does this work when a, when a Christian comes to Christ and they backslide? And let's just say, for argument purposes, this guy, gal, is truly a sold-out believer, and yet they've backslidden. What happens to the Holy Spirit? And I said, well, if they're truly saved, in Matthew 7, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. So you, you, that, that's another argument. But if they're truly saved, and, and God says, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. They're truly saved, yet they're backslidden. How does that work when the Holy Spirit's inside that person? And I said, well, I know a guy. I know a guy who got saved at 15, served the Lord with his whole heart till he was 17. Dad died and so took like a five and a half, six year vacation from Christianity. I know a guy. And during that time, it was the oddest thing that, you know, if you talked bad about Jesus, we were going to fight. And during that time, if you try to tell me about Jesus, we were going to fight. But when the Holy Spirit would prompt and pull and push and all those things, I learned to numb that stuff. And sometimes I learned to numb it with stuff that probably wasn't good for me. Anybody else? No, don't raise your hands. And so what happens to the Holy Spirit? Well, we can kind of squelch the spirit that's in us, Paul says, right? And so we can quiet that voice. But here's the thing about Jesus. If you're his... He ain't letting you off so easy. <laughs> He's going to grab and correct, and it, things are going to happen in your life, and you're going to understand how much he loves you because he corrects those he loves. But self-denial starts when we're made a new creation in Christ. And then it's a die daily. Man, I love dying so much. It's a die moment by moment. Continue to die. There in your notes, Jesus tells us to deny ourselves. To subject our own desires and will to God's will. And when we deny the flesh, the Lord will grant us abundant life as we enjoy deeper fellowship with Him. Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said to His disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to their works. So I want to get some practicalities from that passage as we close. The Matthew 16, and it's probably been preached on by greater men all over the world, but here's some practicalities that I read some commentaries, and here's what I came up with. Number one, we deny ourselves so we can follow Christ. Again, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, follow, follow me. Self-denial, for any other reason than obeying and loving the Lord Jesus Christ, is impossible. Number two, self-denial goes hand in hand with taking up our cross. Again, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, I die daily. Take up your cross. Imagine picking up your cross, walking down the road, knowing you're about to be crucified. And Paul and Jesus both would say, do that. Get your cross. You're fixing to die. Number three, self-denial allows us to find the real life. 
But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Contrary to what this world and the flesh tries to get us to believe, we don't get abundant life. We don't get the fulfilled Christian life until we die. And that's the problem is Christians think that, no, 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 I can have me some all-state fire insurance, but I can live for self. Yes, you can. But you're always going to have that God-shaped vacuum in you desiring so much more. You're going to desire and you're never going to be fulfilled and never satisfied. And you're like, why can't I find that fulfillment? You need to die. I need to go to a psychiatrist and change. No, you need to die. You need to die. And I'm not picking on mental illness. I understand, come from a family of mental illness. Got it. But Christian, if you want the abundant life, you can't flirt with the world. Satan owns the fence. You're either with me or against me. That's what Jesus said. You gotta die. Pursue God's commands, yes. But you gotta understand, coming to Jesus is not a temporary fix. The abundant life will cost you everything. And the abundant life will give you everything. Number four, self-denial helps protect our soul. Look what Jesus said, or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? We know we're not saved by works. So, you know, don't send me an email saying, you know, Rich is trying to preach works salvation. We know we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone, on the cross alone. But if you want the abundant life, you need to deny yourself and it will protect our soul. Serving the Lord protects us, preserves us, renews our mind and gives us an eternal perspective. Number five, last one, and I'll stop beating on you this morning. See, you thought I went for a pastor being paid, and I went right to beating you up. (laughs) Number five, self-denial brings eternal rewards in heaven. Look at verse 27 of Matthew 16 again. For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. So if we submit to the Holy Spirit and submit our desires and follow the Lord's way and allow Him to overrule us, get self off the throne and put Jesus up there, we find satisfaction that will last forever. Mick Jagger couldn't find it because he needed to die. I read an article that said, Surrender is about turning to Christ and trusting in His power to progressively transform us fulfill his purpose through us, and teach us to trust and obey his word. It calls us to lose our limited and potentially doomed selves, turning to God who never fails. See, the Lord loves you so much. Imagine you create a masterpiece. You create this thing. It's perfect in every way. And you see it jump off the table and start harming itself. You created that masterpiece. You want to chase that thing down and tell it to stop harming itself, do you not? And that's what God is saying to us. You are my masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do good works. That's who you are. Trust me. So the flesh and the world entice us to to cave into these harmful desires. But the Lord wants you 
to just enjoy Him, glorify Him and enjoy knowing Him and enjoy fellowship with Him. That's the abundant life. And if we die to self, the ultimate fulfillment, and the, you know, the world and Satan is so good at lying to us, so good. You know, we watch these burger commercials, right? And if I just eat this burger, then I'm going to have the perfect car and the perfect family and the perfect everything. Man, just by that burger, you got to have it. And the world lies to us, and we buy into this garbage that somehow it's so much better if we give into the flesh. And then we wake up the next morning thinking, I've been cheated. I've been robbed. And you know who robbed me? I robbed me. Because we haven't believed what Jesus said, that I have come to give you abundant life. I've come to give you such fulfillment. You're going to have a bad case of the can't help it. And you're going to run around and you're going to preach the gospel to anybody who wants to hear it or anyone who doesn't want to hear it because you're so fulfilled and you have so much joy and peace and love because you're serving Christ. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come on back up. And uh, every week we have people in the back who would love to pray with you. You know, when I do counseling of any sort, I always sit people down and I tell them my true testimony. And a lot of people walk out of there running and screaming, actually. But anyway, I always say that because here's the deal. I have done it wrong. And I know what the fruit from doing it wrong looks like. I've also done it right. And I know what the fruit from doing it right looks like. And so I'm here to tell you, stop believing the lie. Start believing the truth. And if you want to know how to do it right, come talk to one of us in the back. We would love to tell you. We want to tell you about this Jesus who loves you so much. He was willing to be beaten and crucified because he loves you. And he wanted his masterpiece to be fulfilled and live the abundant life. Let's pray. Lord, we love you so much. God, it's amazing how you love us. How would you create a masterpiece and have that masterpiece sin against you and yet you'd give yourself? But Lord, Jesus, that's exactly what you did. And now, God, you want to give us abundant life. I pray that, God, you would transform our minds, that we would stop believing the world's lies and all the garbage that goes with it, and that, God, we would serve you and know you, that we'd love you so much and know you so well that we get a bad case of the can't help it's Lord, and go out and tell everyone who would listen that Jesus is the only way. So God bless us, we pray. We love you, and we're going to worship you now because you're worthy of all praise. We thank you and love you. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, Thank you for listening and we hope that you are blessed. If you'd like to find out more info about our church or any other resources like sermon notes or things like that, you can check out our website at livingfaithclamath.com. Make sure if you haven't already to subscribe or like us on whatever your favorite podcast app is. You'll find us at Living Faith Fellowship Klamath Falls. Again, be blessed. Be blessed.